Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Questions, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape filled with inquisitive song titles. Good morning, Alan. How are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, this this was a fun list to put together. Um, I mean, overwhelmingly, it just some of the stories that I found for the the songs that I'm about to use they were just really interesting and it's it's just a very I don't know it's an unusual mix of music but every one of them and the title asks a question so I mean it, it's I don't know wish I I'm, I'm happy we thought of it I'm I wish we'd thought of it sooner because this is this one was a lot of fun I was a little bit skeptical when you brought up this theme didn't know I'd be able to flesh out an entire playlist as you said quite the contrary I found lots of music and I think this may be my favorite collection of songs that I've uh, accumulated for this podcast. Oh, yeah? Yes. Uh-huh. Now I'm, my curiosity's peaked, so can't wait to see what I mean, you know how it is. If I can't decide, I just pick my favorite songs. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sometimes, well, and, you know, I said this, I think, for uh, our last podcast, The Girls, 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 that um, if I can't decide, I just throw them out <laughs> so especially um you know if, if it's two songs by the same artist that artist will just be mixed because i can't decide so favorite songs is not a bad way to go i probably in, in fact really we we haven't done a favorite songs playlist of any kind no so no. I, I don't know in what context we we would do that but probably would not be a bad idea but um no, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Well, and let's get to the, now If I remember correctly, you, you start. I start. You start. I start. Side A, you yes. start. All right. All right. So um, here we go. Uh, side A, I'm going to go back to 1962. All right. This is uh, an oldie but a goodie. I think we have a match already. Do we really? On my alternates list, if okay. I'm correct. Or is this the contours? It is the contours. All right. We have a match yeah. on my alternates. Okay. Yeah. Do You Love Me by the contours uh, from 1962. It, it charted, hit number three on the Hot 100. Um, Barry Gordy, he wrote Do You Love Me uh, with the intention that The Temptations uh, record it. Uh, the Temptations at that point had not had a top 40 hit to their name. Not yet. Uh, but Gordy was, uh, you know, he, he was in a hurry to record it. He, he set out to locate The Temps and uh, they were nowhere to be found. In fact, they had been, um, he had not been made aware, but um they had departed Motown's Hitsville, USA recording studio for a local Detroit gospel music showcase. So that's why he was unable to find The Temptations. So after spending some time looking for them, Gordy ran into The Contours, uh, which was another group newly signed to the label. They were in the hallway, and wanting to record and release Do You Love Me as soon as possible, Gordy decided to let them have his surefire hit. Uh, he was He was... 100% sure that it would be, and of course he was not wrong. So instead of the temptations, the contours were those were, were the the lucky, you know, the lucky singers of this particular track. Um, the contours actually they they were in danger of being dropped from the label because their first two singles, "Whole Lot of Woman" and and "The Stretch," they both failed to chart. Um, so they were elated at Gordy's offer, and they immediately began hugging and thanking him there in the hallway. So, as for The Temptations, it was another year, or no, another two years, I believe, two years before they had finally 
had their first hit, which would be the way you do the things you do. Uh, but when they did, of course, the Temptations became the premier male act of the Motown roster. Well, and this was the Contours' only hit, right? Yeah, this is the Contours' this was only their moment hit. Yeah. In the sun. <clears throat> so, yeah, do do you love me? It was the fifth release on Gordy Records, uh, and it became a notably successful dance record. Uh, it was built around Gordon's screaming vocals. Um, Which is why I can't imagine the Temptations. Yeah. It's like when you find out an actor that was supposed to play a particular role, like um, uh, Henry Winkler was supposed to be in Greece, and you can't imagine Henry Winkler playing Exactly, exactly. yeah. Uh, in this case, yeah, it's it, it's the screaming vocals uh, from the contours that right. make the song. Yeah, now Gordon, and I should say Billy Gordon. Uh, Billy Gordon was the lead singer of the contours, but it was built around uh, his screaming vocals, and yeah, this this record, it sold over a million copies. Peaked at number three on Billboard, and it was there for three weeks, uh, starting on October 20th of 62. It was number one hit on the Billboard R&B singles chart. Uh, the album featuring the single, Do You Love Me, Now That I Can Dance, was also released. None of the Contour's future singles, as you said, none of them lived up to the success of this song. Um, so although its success won the group a headlining position on Motown's very first Motortown Review tour, their, their 15 minutes, they, they, it came to, a, to an abrupt end. You broke my heart because I couldn't dance. You didn't even want me around. And now I'm back to let you know I can really shake them down. Contours uh, really were, were forgotten until Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing brought this song back into the zeitgeist. In an interview with Rolling Stone, uh, Joe Billingsley of the Contours said, we didn't like the song. It reminded us of Twist and Shout. And he said, I said to the group, this song ain't gonna do nothing, man. And then that same week it was released and the following week it made the charts. I turned around and said, I love this song. Did I change my opinion? Of course I did. We realized later, and Barry Gordon agreed, that The Temptations could never have sung Do You Love Me because it was not suited to their harmonies exactly. or vocal style. Yep. So, yeah, he, he 100% agreed. Um, and, you know, according to music journalist Dave Marsh, Do You Love Me is representative of Gordy's talent as a musician, producer, arranger, songwriter. The result, it's not only classic rock and roll, but a tribute to his stature as the greatest backstage talent in rock history, really. 
Gordy viewed the song as an example of the musical overlap between rhythm and blues, pop, and rock and roll. He told Billboard in 63 that it was recorded R&B, but by the time it reached the half a million mark, it was considered pop. And he brought up a good point. He said, if we hadn't recorded it with a Negro artist, those are his words, not mine, uh, from 63, he said it would have been considered rock and roll. And and he's 100% correct on that as well because of the race divide that existed at the time. So, yeah, as I said, Do You Love Me, it featured prominently in the 87 film Dirty Dancing. I think it actually hit the charts again, almost went not to top 10, maybe? I don't know if it hit top 10, but it, it definitely, uh, actually, I might have it here, um, number 11. Yeah. Number 11, yeah. Uh, 87, um, as part of the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing, it, it revived the record's popularity. It was reissued as a single. It was actually on the more Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it became a hit the second time, peaked at number 11. Uh, Talk about getting your mileage record. out of one song, right? Exactly, yeah. And uh, the Contours then, um, they were composed of Billingsley and three new members because that's what happens with all of the oldest groups. If you ever see any of them live, you're seeing one member of the original lineup. That's usually how how it works. But uh, Billingsley and, and the three new members of the Contours, they joined Ronnie Spector and Bill Medley, among others, on a Dirty Dancing tour actually that resulted from the success of the film so yeah this one i just i how can you not dance along to me it's the the fir- the perfect frat party rock song oh, it is, or yeah. r&b song whatever like you say it's a combination but it's the perfect frat music early 60s like you know could have had a per- place in, in in animal house absolutely alongside you know all the other tunes that were included in that film um and and, and what makes a great you know frat song or, or just a communal song, I guess, a party song, is that everybody can sing and dance to it. Yep. It doesn't matter if you can sing or dance. Everyone can sing or dance to Do You Love Me? Yeah. And that's what makes it so popular. Exactly. Yeah. Frat rock is, you know, it's a very real thing, especially in the 60s. And then I think in the 80s, uh, you, you you could make a good case for it as well. But yeah, this song, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, this... I see very little difference between Do You Love Me and Shout right. by the Isley Brothers. Right. I mean, it's the same, in the same vein, and it, it you know, it really encourages the same the Participation same by the audience. Yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. it really is a, yeah. an invitation to, uh, to sing and dance along. Yeah, but those screaming vocals, they are so raw, and it's just, it, it is just a thrill to, to listen to. And yeah, I thought I'd kick off my list good with, choice, good choice. I can with Do You Love Me. Cross that off my alternates list. I figured you'd probably have that, but. Okay, we're going to go into the future several decades um, from a, a little album called Monster, 1994 from R.E.M. Mm-hmm. Song title is What's the Frequency, Kenneth? I had that on my list, and then I, I, I again, I nixed it because I know you're the R.E.M. fan, but I, for whatever reason, I was really afraid you wouldn't have this one. Oh, this is one of my favorite R.E.M. songs. Okay. One of my favorite songs of the 90s. Yeah. Okay. I was very excited to include this. So I'm glad that I took it off then. Okay. Yeah. The title of the song is a reference to the 1986 attack on Dan Rather, which I don't know if you remember that or not. Oh, yes. It was in the news for a week or so. The attackers, these, these two men kind of randomly came up to Dan Rather and began repeating, Kenneth, what is the frequency? Kenneth, what is the frequency? while brutally beating and kicking him. Um, one of the attackers has since been identified and is serving a sentence for actually killing an NBC stagehand outside the studio. Really? So this guy was not right in the head. He wow. apparently believed that the television studio was sending a signal to his brain 
and he kept repeatedly trying to get NBC to quit broadcasting that signal. And so it sounds like... Um, Schizophrenic? Something, I don't know. It sounds like that stagehand and, and Dan Rather both were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Dan Rather was incredibly lucky. Yeah. Uh, Michael Stipe said, um, despite it being based on that incident, the song itself is actually um, from the perspective of a man of an older generation trying to understand Generation X, which is why I thought it'd be a perfect place to start here with our Gen X mixtape. And, and, the, and the person um, is ultimately unsuccessful in the end of trying to understand Gen X. Uh, the lyrics, I studied your cartoons, radio, music, TV, movies, magazines. And then Richard said, and that's a reference to Richard Linklater, who, of mm-hmm. course, uh, directed uh, Slacker, yep. Days and Confused, among many other excellent films. Richard said, withdrawal in disgust is not the same as apathy, which is a great way to kind of sum up a motto that, of, yeah. <laughs> of Generation X. To that, withdrawal in disgust is not the same as apathy. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. If you notice at the end of the song, it kind of slows down a little bit. That was actually not an artistic choice. Uh, according to guitarist Peter Buck, uh, bassist Mike Mills slowed down the tempo and the band kind of just went along with it. Not understanding at first that he was suffering an appendicitis and <laughs> had to take him to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, good Lord. They left the recording as it is, though, because they thought it worked. <laughs> so if you, if you, next time you listen to it, Mike Mills is actually suffering in pain there where he slows down. That is again. not where I thought you were going. I, no, I, yeah, I thought yeah. there was some... Deeper meaning no. to, to the to the you ha- know. happy accent, as Bob Ross would say. Okay, right? yeah, I, I, I don't know. I was just not expecting appendicitis to be at the end of that story. <laughs> Dan Rather had an opportunity to perform the song with the band during a sound check to a New York show that was broadcast later on the Letterman show, which I have never seen that. I need to look that up. But I guess he had fun kind of joining in. Dan, Dan Rather's always been a little bit offbeat in, in a good way. He has. Yeah, he has. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as I said, this is one of my favorite R.E.M. songs, one of my favorite songs of the 90s. Um, it's a little bit hard, a lot harder in contrast to the previous few albums. You know, they, they had more of the, the jangle pop alternative thing, of course, in, in the 80s. Um, and then in the early 90s, they got pretty mellow, with, especially with Automatic for the People. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really surprised when uh, I believe, the, I'm sure the video came out before the album. And I was just like, whoa, okay, they're really, you know, taking it to the wall. Now, you can't uh, discount the uh, influence of grunge at the time. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I'm not suggesting that R.E.M. was simply just trying to keep up because R.E.M. will always just be R.E.M. And, of course, R.E.M. was a huge influence um, and, and where grunge music would, would uh, eventually begin and go. But um, it just was nice to see them you know, pull out the guitars and amp up the distortion. And even though they, at that time, were beginning to be somewhat aging rockers, um, proof to the world they could still deliver. That was one I just, I didn't know if you'd have it. I almost kept it in, and then I, again, it's R.E.M., so I, I just put my faith in you and 
crossed it off the list. So I remember joking too at the time that that's the album or the video where Mike Mills suddenly grows a personality because <laughs> if you're an REM fan, Mike Mills is the you know the bassist who always had kind of the crop almost of like a bowl cut haircut and just kind of nerdy glasses and just it didn't change. You know, Michael Stipe of course changed every five oh, seconds yeah, yeah. his look and his fashion and what he was trying to to you know, the statement he was trying to make by what he was wearing or, or what have you. Um, Mike Mills just pretty much was the vanilla guy in the background. <laughs> and all of a sudden, um, in this video, he has long hair and he's wearing these bell bottoms with, I think, like stuffed animals sewn to the bottom of, a, of the pants. And everyone else in the band, including Michael, looked pretty, pretty normal. I think this is about the time where Michael, he might have shaved his head before this, but Michael was kind of becoming a little more conservative in his dress. So I guess everyone just has their time. Yeah. I remember the stuffed animals. I, I never understood it, but I, <laughs> I, I, I do remember that from the video. It's like, whoa, what happened to Mike? All right, that's my first choice. All right, well, we're going to go back 20 years because now I'm going to take you to the 1970s, 1971 oh, specifically. No. Oh, no. We have a match. How do you know that already? Because I know the year, Marvin Gaye. No, I did. Oh, no, I did. Okay. I did not include uh-huh. Marvin Gaye on this on this episode. Oh, no. <laughs> no, he did not make my. He he was on. He was on the short list. But right, no, what's right. what's going on? Never made it okay. to my final final uh, list here. No, this one is actually by Lee Michaels, and it might be a name you not you're not even familiar with. Uh, it's from the album Fifth. Uh, that's what it was titled, Fifth. And ironically enough, it was not the fifth album. I, I, I don't know Probably why. Probably the reference to the fifth note in a chord. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Uh, the song hit number six, and the title of this song is Do You Know What I Mean? Okay. It's just a, it's just a fun one. There, there's, you know, pretty soon on my list, especially on the flip side next week, I get into some very serious subject matter, but this song is just... It's just quirky and fun. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. Lee Michaels, he was actually a California kid, okay? He played organ like Ray Charles, and he had the singing voice of a surfer, if you can imagine that juxtaposition. Um, and, you know, it, it was really interesting because nobody before or, a, or after, nobody since, really gives surfers much credit for having any soul. I mean, you don't really associate that with, you know, surf rock. But Michaels actually pulled it off pretty easily. He he was a convincing bluesman, and at times he could rival Robert Plant in his delivery. Um, if you if you ever find one of his very few albums and then listen to some of the deep cuts, and he he is the real the real deal. At other times though, he would just run with it, and the results were often hilarious. So, do you know what I mean? Has Michaels exaggerating the "Oh wow, man" you know aspect of his voice? until it imbues the lyrics with this loose attitude of his character. Um, although the lyrics tell a tale about losing his lover to his best friend, he seems to be hovering somewhere between disbelief and confusion, really. So if you imagine like Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High getting dumped, this would be Sean Penn's performance, all right? It would sound eerily similar to, to Michael's on the track. He doesn't scream, he doesn't cry, he doesn't, there's no bitterness, Instead, he just seems dumbfounded when he sings, I just saw her yesterday, I just saw her, had nothing to say, do you know what I mean? And and the result is just a feel-good song about losing your girlfriend.
Anybody who can accurately portray such a goofy character and diffuse the pain as well as Michaels does here is quite the actor. I, I you know, pr I give props to, to the performance. The unique instrumentation only adds to the song's one-off appeal. Uh, aside from the strong percussion and occasional overdub of piano and harpsichord, the record is virtually an organ orgy. I mean, it's it's really organ orgy. Yeah, good band name, I call it. Okay, yeah, dibs. All, All right. right. Um, although Michael's is, I didn't even think of that is a good band name. Um, I digress. Uh, <laughs> no, I interrupted. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I. <laughs> That's what we do in my household. We we call out good band names whenever we hear them. You just gave me a new a new game to play. There you go. I, I like it. Um, although Michael's is a talented multi instrumental instrumentalist, um, the organ always dominated his recordings. And do you know what I mean? There's no exception. So after his big hit, this this was his his big hit, uh, Michaels did a disappearing act. Uh, most people assume he was a one-hit wonder. Uh, that was not actually the case. He did release four previous... Oh, I take that back. Fifth must be the fifth album. Um, as I'm looking at my notes here, I forgot about that. He, he did release four previous albums. So there's your fifth. And, and all of them featured an eclectic blend of pop and blues, mostly with the same sparse instrumentation. His only regular sideman was his drummer, who went by the name of Frosty. So Frosty later formed the band Sweathog, who apparently had a single titled Hallelujah in 1971. I don't know that I know Sweathog. I, are you Sounds like a Welcome it? Back Connor Well, reference. it does, yeah, yeah very much. Um, but anyway... Um, in addition to Do You Know What I Mean, Michael's fifth featured his only other top 40 single. It was actually a reworking of Marvin Gaye's Can I Get a Witness, um, which I've, I've never heard. On the success of these two singles, Michael's was introduced to the pop audience, and with his fan base now greatly increased, Columbia Records bought out his contract from A&M, and they obviously assumed that his career had only just begun, and they were very wrong. Uh, none of his Columbia release, releases sold anywhere near what was expected. And after a few failures, he vanished completely from the music scene. Uh, it seems unlikely that he'll resurface again. Um, we are now 40 years removed, but uh, particularly, you know, since time, uh, I'm sure has likely destroyed the youthful naivete of his, of his voice, but who knows? Uh, there's always room for another good blues artist, particularly one who plays keyboards as well as surfer dude Michaels did. So, there you go. There's my number two. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I will stay in 1971 then. I've kind of already revealed where I'm going with this. Okay. Uh, not only are we going to stay in uh, 1971, but we'll uh, go back to Motown as well. And uh, perhaps my favorite, at least top three favorite uh, Vietnam era protest songs of all time. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. The song is actually based on an incident of police brutality that was witnessed by Four Tops member Ronaldo Obi Benson during an anti-war rally in Berkeley. After discussing the incident with a friend and songwriter, Al Cleveland, Cleveland wrote an early draft of the song and presented it to the Four Tops. They rejected it. Why? Because it was a protest song. Yeah. But when Cleveland presented it to Marvin Gaye, the song found a home. Gaye tweaked the melody and the lyrics a little bit, and he recorded it. After an extensive arranging and recording process, Gay finally presented it to Motown head Barry Gordy. Who did not want him to record it. Who hated it. Yeah, Why? he hated that song. Because it was a protest song. Yep. In fact, Gordy said, quote, it's the worst thing I have ever heard in my life, end quote. Yeah. Well, you know, Motown, 
they were very smart, especially given the racial tensions, you know, that, that were running rampant through the through the nation at that time. Motown never got political okay. until this album. Well, I can so. understand saying that's a great song, but it's too political for our label, or that's a great song, maybe change the lyrics. But to say it's the worst, I mean, Barry Gordy is very good. To say that's the worst thing, I, I hope he was being hyperbolic here because that doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, in turn. Gay played a little hard, played a little bit of capital, right? It's Marvin mm-hmm. Gay. So he refused to record any new material until Gordy agreed to release the song. So they kind of have a, a standoff here, a little stalemate. Uh, without Gordy's knowledge, the Motown sales vice president releases the song, right, to radio stations across the country. The song became a huge hit, spending five weeks at number one on the R&B charts and reaching number two on the Hot 100. As a result, Gordy then, of course, had to allow Gay to not only include the song on his upcoming album, but he was able to produce all the songs in the upcoming right. album. So it kind of helps when you get a hit on your belt like that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, from what I know, uh, Gordy did a lot of backpedaling. Then, oh, yeah. Saying, well, I, I never said that I, right. I hated the song. Um, yeah, Marvin Gaye, um, and I didn't do the research because I took it off my list, but from what I've read about Marvin Gaye, because I've, I, you know, I, I'm a, I love soul music and know a bit about him. I know that uh, he he did rework some of the lyrics, and I think they were largely inspired. His his brother had just returned from Vietnam, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that the conversations the two of them had had shared uh, were very yes. much. Yeah, it was originally, like I said, police brutality. Right. He kind of changed the angle yeah. a little bit. With because of his yeah. brother, that is correct. Yeah, and yeah. and Gay also at this time he he. He really had gotten, he had outgrown his love songs. And that was in part because his marriage was on the rocks. He was going to be divorcing here uh, very soon. And the, his other partner, who never never cheated on his wife, but um, Tammy Terrell, who might as well have been a, a second lover. I mean, it certainly sounded like they had the chemistry on their albums. It was his work wife. Yeah, exactly. Tammy Terrell, they were very close. And she actually died in his arms on stage during a concert um, just uh, a few months before he recorded this. So, I mean, he he kind of gave up the, the love songs and kind of, he wanted to make a statement. In fact, the entire album, What's Going On, mm-hmm. and it's all a statement. He talks right. about, you know, the the environment. And he talk, it's, it's Which all is the there. only reason he was able to get away with that was because this was secretly yeah. released. And- exactly. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Oh, what's going on 
I took it off, which I thought that would actually surprise you. That I, 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 I thought that was one you thought I would have. It's not why I took it off. No, I just, I just love the song. In yeah. fact, Rolling Stone in 2010, Rolling Stone ranked of their 500 greatest songs. Well, Where do you think be, they place? Yeah, it's got to be high. Number four. Yep, I was going to say it's, number four. It's of definitely the 500 greatest songs of all time. Oh, and it's, well, it's just so smooth, you know. Mother, mother, there's far too many of you crying. Well, it, it's sad, it's just, but it's also aware. It's also, you know, it's one of those kind of rallying cries that it, it, it tugs at the heartstrings with a hopefully with a, like a call to action. It, yeah. Um, to, to, to kind of wake us up a little bit. Of course, I'm saying us. This was intended, of course, for audiences at the tail end of the Vietnam era and the end of, you know, the summer of love and all that stuff, but um, yeah. Well, we've said it before. I mean, any 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 sixties protest number could apply today. Apply today. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Especially with last summer. Yeah. So no, it's. It, I'm glad you have it because it it. I had to cut it and didn't want to and didn't need to. So again, you you helped me out there. By the way, that one did not have a question mark. <laughs> What's the frequency <laughs> Kenneth did? Um, actually, the first two that I've named did not. Right. So, And uh, number three does. All right. Okay, here's my number three. Uh, this one is from 1979. I'm kind of going in chronological order here. I did not realize that at the time. Uh, it's from an album titled Look Sharp. Oh, and we have a match. We have a match. It we hit have a match. number 21 on Billboard. It is by Joe Jackson, and it is titled, Is She Really Going Out With Him? So for all of the all of the songs that you had to choose from, and three times now, we've already matched. Yep. So, yeah, this might be an ongoing thing. But we match, that's, that's, that's next week you matched with me, so. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, Is She Really Going Out With Him? Uh, it was one of the first songs that Jackson recorded um, with the Joe Jackson Band, uh, which included bassist Graham Maybe and guitarist Gary Sanford, drummer Dave Hutton. Uh, the song was immediately popular with the band. Jackson recalled in his autobiography that everybody liked it. It was catchy, they said, and had the makings of a hit. He said, I wouldn't know a hit. Uh, I protested from a hole in my head. I liked all of my songs, and I'd written a hit. If I'd written a hit, he, he wrote, it was by accident. But he said he appreciated the enthusiasm and something else too, a growing feeling that he was up to something. So the final version of this song was recorded with American producer David Kirschenbaum in August of 78 after Jackson was signed to A&M Records. Uh, according to Jackson, the song originated from when he heard the title uh, and Jackson claimed that he heard that title first in a song by The Damned. Mm-hmm. who themselves had gotten it from the shangri the There we Lops. go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the song in question is Leader of the Pack, of course, which begins with the spoken lines, is she really going out with him? Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? So, yeah. Uh, definitely, you know, a, a classic, a well-known classic from the mid-60s there. Um, now, from there, Jackson came up with the basis for the lyrics uh, for quote, a funny little song about watching couples and wondering what the girls could possibly see in the guys, unquote. Uh, Jackson recalled that it wasn't based on a specific incident or anything like that. Uh, Rather, he tried to write a funny song around the title, and that's about all there was to it, really. Although the song was written to be comical, it actually has been interpreted, though, by some critics as angry, earning Jackson the tag of angry young man and he said of the song's origins in an interview, you know, I, he doesn't know where that comes from. 
Uh, he heard the phrase somewhere. He thought that it could be kind of funny, uh, the idea of a gorgeous girl going out with a monster. And it just started from there. It was just a funny song, supposed to be funny. It was a great surprise to me, he said, when some people interpreted it as being angry. In another interview, this one I, I was kind of taken aback from, uh, Jackson recalled another incident where the lyrics to the song were misinterpreted. He explained that he was accused of racism by an African-American gentleman because of the song's opening line, Pretty Women Out Walking with Gorillas Down My Street. Uh, the man had thought, uh, you know, the gorillas was, you know, a racial uh, slur um, about black men dating white women. And Jackson, you know, he said, no matter what I said, he wouldn't believe me. And as far as he was concerned, that was what it was. So, I mean, really, what what can you do? Um, Jackson said, I always feel like my lyrics are very clear, but what can I say? Um, the New Wave Classic contains a soft seesaw rhythm of plunking guitar and bass and, and a rhythm section performance um, that Steve Huey of All Music said immediately sets a vibe of cool indignation. Uh, lyrically, Dave, this song, it just contains a string of priceless quips. Oh, yeah. Really. About, you know, boy-girl laws of attraction. And, and the verses feature a call and response between Jackson and the rest of the band. In live shows, the audience typically provides the responses, which um, Sarah Larson of The New Yorker recalled uh, seeing him in concert performing it the first time. It made Jackson laugh out loud. He broke character, had to stop singing during a performance the first time that the audience uh, gave the, the response to you know that back and forth. According to Jackson, people still occasionally tell him that it is the best song that he's ever written. And Jackson said, while he's certainly not ashamed of it and he thanks them, he has to admit that he sincerely hopes that they are not right. <laughs> so. Pretty women at walking with gorillas down my street. From my window I'm staring while my coffee goes cold. Look over there. Married now or engaged or something, so I'm told. Is she really going out with him? Is she really gonna take him home tonight? Is she really going out with him? Because if my eyes don't deceive me, there's something going wrong around here. You could you could you can see how like like well I don't know that they really identified incel culture back then but today like this being adopted by in the incels as like their theme song but yeah this if you know Joe Jackson at all you know that's not the case this yeah. is not an angry no not at all song this is not a misogynistic song at all um, yeah and it actually flopped when it was first released it, it took I think a second time when it was reissued finally that it found some chart success and then of course yeah. like a lot of songs do a generation later. You know, it, it becomes classic. It becomes oh, yeah. discovered ahead of its time, as they say. Um, it's funny. My, my wife and I have a, a little game, technically, probably usually when we're at the beach, and we're just watching people walk by, you know. And it's like uh. a mixed-matched couple. And we try, this is probably wrong, but we try to point out the most mixed-matched couple. 
and it's very similar. It's like, oh my gosh, like, and it could go either way. Like, look at her and him, or look at him and her. But like, why are the two of them? What's what's going on there in the relationship? Because one of them's a three, and one of them's a ten. You know, right? Very right. shallow and physically speaking, of course. Right. But I can see where he's coming from, especially if you are, you know, a young man and you're in the dating scene, and you think, hey, you know, I'm not maybe you know Romeo, but I'm also not a dog. And then you look uh, and you see somebody, then you think. Really? How? Why? How? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in a fun sort of way, not in an angry sort of way. Right. Oh no. Yeah. I, it, I. If you're a people watcher, I think we've all had those moments where you just see that couple and you, you know, he must be rich. <laughs> yeah, rich or, or he has to have one hell of a sense of humor. I suppose. <laughs> I'm glad you said sense of humor. You, I, I was going to go somewhere else. I, I saved it just, uh, <laughs> just in time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, no, that's a great song. It, it's one of those songs that I. I kind of uh, I was aware of, but when we were at FAL in college, and I would go through the the extensive, you know, collection of vinyl in that record library. Remember mm-hmm. that thing? Oh, oh I love um, that. It was place. one that I pulled out from there uh, when I was kind of exploring Joe Jackson, and that's when I really became a fan of the song. Yeah, Co- well, college is where I really got my introduction to him as well, because prior to that, I knew Stepping Out. Right. That that was I, yep. I, I knew Stepping Out, but yeah, I mean, this it's just it is a new wave classic. I mean, it just. Probably, I would say, top three. Uh, when when I think new wave, top three for me easily. Well, as, ja- as a jazz guy, you know he has like jazz. Oh like, yeah, he, like the Joe Jackson Trio and stuff. Oh yeah, I mean his yeah his swing albums, and he has a, he has a couple, um, maybe more than two. I'm not sure, but it's yeah he definitely uh, can do some amazing things on the piano. It's 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 phenomenal. Well, and he's one to really rearrange his songs live. Um, you're not going to go to a Joe Jackson concert and hear the recording, you know. And I say rearrange, like oftentimes completely changing up, yep. um, not only the musical arrangements, sometimes even playing with the melody a little bit. So now, have you seen him live? I have not. I've, okay. I've heard several of his, his concert albums. Is, is how okay. I know that. I have not yeah. seen him live. No, I've, I've never seen him live. I, I I would love to. I bet he puts on a hell of a show. But no, I had to include it. And and in case you can't tell, I mean, this first side, I'm just having fun. Oh, yeah. with, with the yeah. songs, well, but. Um, yeah, this one is just, it doesn't get more fun than, you know, is she really going out with him? So, Great choice. I'll have to look for one of my alternates next week. Okay. Next one does not have a question mark either, although these all should. As English teachers, it's <laughs> very should. hard not to judge. Yes. Um, I'm just pulling out all the big ones here. Um, this is from what some people will say is the greatest album of rock and roll. 1966. I'm talking about Pet Sounds. By the Beach Boys. We have a match. And that would be, wouldn't it be nice? Look at that. We're matching all, I thought you had like 300 question songs. Wow. Um, well, yes. I did, but I did, I did, but yeah, I, I, I had to include wouldn't it be nice, but I will defer to you. You tell the story. Well, I, I just remember um, I, one of my earliest memories, and we've talked about this, I'm sure, before, where a song is used, a, a song from earlier rock and roll is used in a commercial Right in the eighties, oh, yeah. and so a lot of songs, unfortunately, I heard for the first time, you know, in association with a particular product. A lot of times, the commercials played over and over again to the point where you're completely sick of it. Uh, Beach Boys, like, I'm, I'm guessing Mike Love probably owns the catalog because he'd be the type to sell it to anybody and everyone. But I'm not a huge Mike Love fan. But anyway, I remember Sunkissed, for instance, Good Vibrations. I mean, it, it, I associated that song with with Sunkissed, you know, forever until I got into the Beach Boys and understood that that like Good Vibrations is a masterpiece on oh, yeah. so many different levels, and it was reduced to you know these guys playing frisbee on the beach. Well, there was a car commercial 
and uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice was on the car commercial, and that's where I first heard it. And I hated the song. I just hated the song at the time. So then, you know, fast forward to the, you know, that's probably when I was really, you know, eight or nine. Later on in my teens, when I start to explore um, rock and roll and in a little more depth, and of course, I begin to read about pet sounds. And so I buy pet sounds, or I might have gotten at the library. And I remember looking over it saying, like, I don't see any big singles here, like Surfing USA, like, what's going on? And of course, I drop the needle, and what's the first thing? Oh, no, not the car commercial song. Yeah. Um, and, and I got to say, I went through the album a few times at first, and I'm kind of like, really? This is the great, because, you know, it's one of, and I said, you know, by the way, we, we, had a, we had a talk off air, by the way, this week, folks, where apparently we say, you know, a lot. So yeah, we do. Uh, we need to st- if I say it, you need to give me a sign. And if you say it, I'll give it give you a sign. Fair we're going to try. But we're giving the signs after we say it. So it does, yeah, but maybe it'll begin to uh, you, register. Okay. How yeah, it might be preemptive. All right. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back to what I was saying. <laughs> After a few listens, um, and if you take the time to really try and understand what's going on there, you soon realize the genius of Pet Sounds, not only what Brian Wilson was able to achieve in his head and be able to translate that onto to tape, but how it, it basically changed rock and roll. I mean, it was, a, it was a competition, right, between the Beatles and the Beach Boys back and forth trying to outdo each other, so the Beatles had their place in as well, but you just cannot understate the importance of this record. All right, back to the song. Uh, Brian Wilson was inspired, this is so Brian Wilson, yeah. by his confusing infatuation for his sister-in-law. Yeah, having lots of sexual fantasies about her. And actually. her innocent aura, yes. Yes. And and again, if you're not a, a Brian Wilson fan or haven't looked into it, Brian, like many geniuses, um, is a little off in places, right? And the thing about Brian was he was so innocent in so many ways and, and not very self-aware in other ways. And so I guess you'd have this conversation with people about just being madly in love and infatuated with the sister-in-law. And people are like, dude, you, you can think that, but you can't say that. You can't keep talking about that. Your wife's in the next room, right? Um, but lyrically, the song centers around a young couple who looks forward to the freedom that they will experience as adults, which is pretty easy to pick up when you listen to the lyrics. Oh, yeah. Um, like the rest of Pet Sounds, the song features that wall of sound style production, made famous, of course, by Phil Spector, that stacks a variety of instruments under layers of harmonized vocals. Uh, Brian led the famous Wrecking Crew, which, of course, was a collection of accomplished studio musicians that played on so many records at the time they got their own name, um, through the arrangements playing in his head. You know, Brian was deaf in one ear and he was still able to hear these amazing things going on. It reminds me, did you watch Queen's Gambit on Netflix? Oh, yeah. Which I, yeah. And how she would see the, the chess pieces in the ceiling. This is how I envision Brian seeing all these different musical variations, almost visually in yeah. his head.
The song was written by Brian Wilson with lyrics penned by writing partner Tony Asher. Um, Mike Love, Mike in Love. the Mike Love style, sued for writing credit on the song, as he did for 34 other Beach Boy yeah. compositions. And he, he contributed, I think, what, the very closing line. He wasn't even present during the writing sessions. No, he wasn't, but it's... Um it's it's the oh what a good night baby um, yeah well, I'm trying to he added I think it's just the very close yeah. of, of the song yeah that's called giving a note that's not called I, writing credit uh, agreed um, like I said I didn't dig the song as a kid but uh, now of course it, it it fits perfectly on the record and I have a new appreciation for it and what can I say um, how many albums have spawned their, a box set for the album of, of you know, deleted tracks and, and different demo versions. You can actually buy the Pet Sounds box mm-hmm. set. I think it's like five discs of just outtakes and studio chatter. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Brian was, was working with the Wrecking Crew while the rest of the band was on tour. So this was really just Brian Wilson and his symphony. And then when the Beach Boys came back in town, they would lay down the harmonies over top of what was already recorded. So, yes, it's a Beach Boys album, but really it's a Brian Wilson album. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that wall of sound you're talking about, the instrumentation on this, I mean, you have drums, obviously, but you also have timpani and glockenspiel. You have the trumpet, the sax, the accordion, guitars, pianos, upright bass. There's, there is literally, um, you know, a mondo, it's a mondo guitar, mando guitar, I'm not sure, but it, it's like a harp-like instrument. But what what is truly just, it, what cracks me up, because it's, it's so Brian, were the vocal sessions for this song. Um, because, uh, first of all, love, okay, at this time they actually got along, so <laughs> there's no animosity uh, meant, but he affectionately nicknamed Brian the Stalin of the studio during these sessions. And... You know, during one passage of Wouldn't It Be Nice, Brian Wilson made the Beach Boys sing that passage close to 30 times. And some of the tries, from what they could tell, were perfect, but Brian kept looking for something more than the actual notes or the blend of, of voices. Um, according to Love, he was reaching for something mystical out of the range of hearing. Um, he actually wrote that of, of Brian in the liner notes for the Pet Sounds box set. But but Love also wrote that by the twentieth take, he started affectionately calling Wilson dog ears, as Brian could apparently hear things that humans couldn't. So Brian must have been part canine, he said, because he was reaching for something intangible and perceptible to most and all but impossible to execute. Um, this song too, just as an aside, in two thousand six the National Review magazine compiled a list of what they claim are the fifty most conservative rock lyrics <laughs> of course national review did <laughs> yeah this was one of the songs they mentioned yeah, of course uh, claiming it advocates abstinence and promotes marriage it, it, so. it's brian's innocence it really it is. is it's it really his is. yeah it's it's yeah even though brian didn't write the lyrics he worked very closely with with tony asher who basically took brian's ideas and put them you know on the on the page but yes um you can almost say brian was the stanley kubrick of the music world. That a great analogy. Yeah, that's very much so. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, um, you're going to have to find uh, one on your alternate list now. Yeah. 
And by the way, we could do an entire podcast on the Beach Boys. Oh, easily. Heck, yeah. we could probably do it just on Pet Sounds alone. So. Yep. Okay. Well, my next song, uh, again, I'm going chronologically. This one comes from 1987. Uh, it's from an album titled Actually, and it is by the Pet Shop Boys with or featuring Dusty Springfield. The name of the song is What Have I Done to Deserve This? It peaked at number two on the Hot 100. Um, I was never a huge Pet Shop Boys fan, um, but I love this song. And that's probably in large part due to Dusty Springfield, I'll I'll be honest. I mean, she's just one of the the greats. Um, And I'm not alone in thinking that because um, Neil Tennant basically has gone on record that Dusty Springfield was his musical heroine. I mean, he cites her as being one of his greatest inspirations and to this day her 1969 album Dusty in Memphis remains mm, his favorite yeah, great his album. favorite LP so he insisted because he wrote this that this was written to be a duet he insisted that he had to perform it with Dusty Springfield right well there were complications with that uh, first of all EMI which was uh, their record label Parlophone's parent company they did not want the duo to work with Springfield Instead, they kept pushing on him that he should do the duet with either Tina Turner or Barbara Streisand. And I cannot imagine Streisand singing this song. (laughs) Tina, I I can see Tina, but not Streisand. Um, The reason being, Springfield's career had really declined from its peak in the 1960s, uh, with her last top 40 entry being How Can I Be Sure in 1970. Um, In fact, The Independence, Adam Sweeting, described the ensuing years for Springfield as a litany of unmemorable albums while her private life became a free fall into drugs, alcohol, and self-mutilation. And he's not, he's not far off. I mean, Dusty Springfield, she, she had rock bottom. Uh, but Tennant was insistent. He was not going to sing this unless he had Springfield as his partner. So, uh, basically, he stood his ground and, and you know his label said, fine. So, he sent a demo of the tape to Springfield's manager, and word came back that she wasn't interested in doing the duet. So the song was left off of Please, okay, their, their earlier album. Please, uh, it was written to be a track on Please, and, and it did not make the cut because Springfield was, was not interested. But Springfield at that time had been unfamiliar with the Pet Shop Boys. Then she heard on the radio multiple times, I'm sure, West End Girls. And she found that she loved the song. So several months later, um, basically the, the duo's manager, Pet Shop Boy's manager, heard back from Dusty Springfield saying that she had changed her mind. She now wanted to record the duet after all. So it, it took a long time for this to happen, but eventually they, they came together. And um, yeah, Tennant and Springfield, they recorded this song. Um, She's in the video, I believe, as well. Yeah, yeah, she is. Um, and it, it's just, it's it's so catchy. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll give credit, you know, where credit's due. Tenon, I, the, the Pet Shop Boys do an amazing job here. But her voice, I mean, we're, we're 20 years removed from her peak at this point. Right. She had not done anything. She basically, you would think that, you know, the drugs and whatnot would have destroyed her voice. 
she sounds yeah. like she just walked off of you know Dusty in Memphis or or any of her work from the sixties. Um, but when released as a single in 1987, uh, as I said, it peaked at number two uh, on the Billboard Hot 100. Peaked at number two in the UK as well. It became the fourth top ten hit for the Pet Shop Boys at that time, as well as the biggest hit of Springfield's career, her entire career in the United States. In fact, the song also helped to revive Springfield's career, and and it led to an increase of sales and interest in her previous songs. Uh, What Have I Done to Deserve This was kept from the top of the Billboard charts, first by Seasons Change by Exposé, and then Father Figure by George Michael. Um, In the UK, it was kept out of the top spot by Rick Astley and Never Gonna Give You Up. So, I, to me, that all of that's just blasphemy. This song is so much better than any of those three. But you know, be that as it may. You always want a success it, it revived the blue-eyed soul singer's career after years in the wilderness and Tennant and, and uh, Lowe had gone to write and produce four songs on Springfield's 1990 album Reputation uh, including the hit singles Nothing Has Been Proved and In Private so yeah the, this song it won universal praise from music critics I mean all favorable reviews um, and, and it, you know it's just it it's a brilliant song, and the Pet Shop Boys, they get everything right here. It's, it's a memorable tune, perfect production, intelligent lyrics, um, and, and Dusty Springfield. I mean, it, it's it's pretty damn near perfect. Um, the one thing I will say uh, is that in an article from 2017 uh, from NME, uh, Nick Levine called it possibly the greatest pop song in history, uh, writing, We Can Chat hooks and unusual structure all you want but this song just has that thing before it's even finished you already want to play it again so yeah there's my number four i went with the pet shop boys which um never i that one's probably i never thought i'd well, include the pet shop I, i'm not a big fan but the, the pet shop and i am a fan you know that yeah but the pet shop boys yeah i mean they're 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 students of of, of new wave and of disco um and classical music 
and they have a soft spot for soul. And so you can see all of those elements in their music, which, right. you know, there are a lot of electronic bands in the new wave era and into the, you know, 90s and so forth that were very forgettable. Um, but the ones that continue, the ones that have staying power, have those influences that go beyond the electronic, right, that have the roots in rock and roll. And I think that's why the Pet Shop Boys have, just till this day are making music good stuff yeah yeah no, absolutely and you know I to hear that Dusty in Memphis is Tenon's favorite song that is newfound respect for that man because I oh my god I, I love Dusty Springfield so now talk about songs ruining or commercials ruining songs there's a current Geico commercial now with uh, where they use the Pet Shop Boys uh, song Opportunities have you seen it yeah where the hood ornament yeah. begins to sing with the driver and again, they're ruining this song for a new generation of potential listeners. Yeah. And it no. kills me. Yeah, I, I saw it. And I just, I've only seen it once or twice, but yeah. It was, and I like that song. I, I do like What Have I Done to Deserve This, but it's not probably even in my top 10 favorite Pet Shop Boys. Just personal preference. Oh, sure. Opportunities is one of my like top five, and I'm like, oh man, they're killing this song. Uh, yeah, no, I, this one, I, especially not being a big fan, definitely my favorite song by them. But yeah. again, it's... It's Dusty. Yep. I, I Good stuff, know, man. love my soul yeah. music, and she is just, she's killer. So, Well, let's stay in Europe. Let's stay in new wave alternative music, shall we? Okay. I am the sun. I am the heir of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. I am the sun and the heir of nothing in particular. That has to be the lyrics of one particular brooding individual of the 1980s, Mr. Morrissey. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the opening lines to How Soon Is Now?, Okay. which has a question mark by the Smiths, which was originally a single uh, off of uh, Headful of Hollow from 1984. Uh, I think it appeared in some pressings, maybe American pressings of Mita's Murder later, and of course, multiple compilations as well. But uh, yes, How Soon Is Now, it's, it's arguably the, the best known Smith song to people who are not Smiths fans. I believe it was also featured in several movies, including The Wedding Singer. I think it was also included in that, which may be why a lot of people know it. Uh, maybe yeah, I, yeah. I, it's been years since I've seen it the band is a um, little uncomfortable with that being that being the song that maybe most people can identify them by simply because it's not necessarily representative of the Smith song the Smith's the very jangle type of uh, uh, pop uh, band really and this song is, is a lot different but it's really 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 cool um, originally it was a B-side actually that, that showed how much faith they had in the song at the time sure um, it was written by Morrissey and Johnny Marr of course, Johnny Marr was the musical genius, not taking anything away from Morrissey. Incredible voice, really, really interesting lyrics. I, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure how much he wrote in terms of melody. I'm, I'm, he contributed. But Johnny Marr really was like the engineer of the band. And this story kind of proves it. So he wanted to experiment about writing a song with a single chord. In this case, it's F sharp. He was able to sustain the chord for as long as 16 bars at a time. Wow. The rest of the studio sound was created through a series of studio setups, including distantly placed microphones and reverb amplifiers that were all set to different speeds. So when you listen to the beginning of, of How Soon Is Now, it's a really, really cool effect, especially if you listen to it in headphones. But most people today probably take it for granted that they just turned on a computer played with the controls, and they made this effect. Not at no, that, no, 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 no. Not, not in that era. No, I mean, they are literally setting up amps in different rooms, a microphone, and the distance between those amps, and um, it, it's crazy. 
this uh, arduous process in creating the sound it made it really difficult, obviously, to play in concerts. So they didn't play it in concert very often. Um, eventually, bands that have these types of studio setups usually re- will record the track that they can't replicate live and play that along with the song. Right. Uh, they did not do that. But yeah, this is. And Johnny Marr has been asked since, like, what's the recipe for that? And he can't remember it. So much like a, a cook or a chef, you know, that throws stuff together just because that's, you know, they have that. That, that sense and it turns out to be incredible and then they can't replicate what they did because they were just kind of throwing this in and throwing that in and that's what he basically did in the studio over this, this several days of just rearranging different sounds and getting it on tape and layering things on top of each other record company didn't care for the track um so it, it's used a lot that the term ahead of its time but i would re- really argue for that with this track um, which is why it was relegated to being a b-side however a nighttime dj began to play the song and pretty soon on this particular dj remember back in the day when djs could actually play songs oh yes it I became remember. the most requested song of this dj's nighttime show well do you remember when we could call in and request yes. a song remember when, they, when, remember when they would do dedications for you on the yes. radio yes I, I do it is a different time so place. after finally the, the popularity of it on the airwaves um, it was issued as a single after being released you know several ways previously and despite the fact that this was the band's first music video of their career uh, it, it didn't really chart so the record company might have been right <laughs> of commercial success it obviously found a niche there were people that liked the song but it just didn't have that same pop appeal Right, that the, maybe the rest of the the Smiths song, especially in England, people from America maybe don't realize the Smiths were not commercially successful in America. No, um, yeah. and MTV started picking up you know some of their their later videos with especially with Strange Ways Here We Come, and they became part of that 120 minutes right staple uh, of 120 minutes. But over in England, the Smiths were a pop band. Oh yeah, the Smiths were... hit the the top of the charts as a pop band would over here. Yeah, they were huge. Uh, it's just their pop sensibility was a little maybe more refined than Americans at the time. I mean, we obviously had a lot of new wave hits over here, but but the Smiths were really, in some ways, um, I don't want to say teeny bopper music, but they were seen that way, even though they were a lot more serious and a lot more innovative than you know. That's that's I think what America saw in that band. They didn't see them as a as a teenage pop band. Yeah. So it failed to chart, um, unfortunately, for them. Uh, again, though, I think it was like 1992, they released it again in the UK, and it finally reached number 16. So there you go. Again, another generation discovers something that's ahead of its time. Um, yeah, although it's not representative of the band's signature sound, it's impossible to ignore, especially if you aren't a Smiths fan. This is, this is what you think of. Yeah, no, it's a great song. I... I <laughs> 
I, I don't know what to say. It's I. You're right. I mean, there are so many Smiths non-fans that would know this one. It's just, it, it's kind of uncanny, really. But I'm I'm still taking them. They were considered a pop band. Yeah. Oh yeah. In, in the in sense the that they were they were the, the top of the pops. They were on that show. I think it was like okay. England's version of, of Bandstand or Total Request Live yeah. or MTV no, or whatever. No, I, they I, were I, on I'm, that quite a bit. I'm a Smiths fan. I'm, I'm not to the level that you are, of course. But um, yeah, I mean Morrissey is just. I mean, the man is just, I, I don't know if there's a more depressed musician in the history of British music. But that so. was great, because so many of their songs were upbeat in tempo. Well, yeah, I mean, he very does. very positive, yeah. no, that's major true. chords, that's and true. the lyrics were hanging around. Again, not being a lyrics person, I never noticed that right away. Now, eventually, right. of course, with Morrissey, I began to tune in. But like songs like This Charming Man and Still Ill and um, you know, The Boy with the Thorn in His Side, really, really poppy songs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very yeah. successful in the no, I, I can say, I mean, yeah, when you get into the jangle bit of it, you know, I like her in a tutu and... and, and Which is the one, you, I think you, um, you uh, last season you introduced a Smith song oh, for uh, a mixtape. Was yeah. it Frankly Mr. Shankly? Frankly Mr. Yeah, Shankly. Again, very <laughs> yeah, again. Which, yeah, again, it's... Exactly. I don't know. I just when I think of the Smiths, though, my favorite songs by them are not the jangle. Like, there's a light that never goes out. Yeah, please, 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 let, let me, me get, get what I want. want. Right. And yeah, so, nice open my eyes. You know, I, so yeah, the jangle. I, I, I get. I can see how that would be top of yeah. the pops. Yeah. Um. I don't know. That just kind of left me speechless when you said that. I, I just yeah, yeah. They were they were very commercially successful in England. Hmm. I they, they put out. They, they were kind of that old '60s model of they would put out singles okay. without an album to support it, and then when they had enough singles, they would put out an put album, out album. Yeah. with a few extra tracks and then sell the album. Got it. Yeah. No, I, I knew they were huge. I just I don't. I never thought of them as a pop band. I, the, yeah. I just yeah. I, you just blew my mind. I just never made that you know, connection before. So yeah, they're kind of like the cure in that way that they were a manic depressant, right? They had some really, really oh, yeah. upbeat pop songs and then said really incredibly, so, incredibly yeah. uh, morbid tunes as well. And of course, Morrissey continues to, well, he's kind of yeah. off the deep end. Yeah, he but, has, but, um, but back in the day, yep. some great music. All right. All right. Um, now I'm jumping ahead to 2005. Okay. This one is by the Pussycat Dolls. I do not have this song, I guarantee you. I thought if we had a match, it would be Pussycat Dolls. this one. Alan. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm telling you what, as a DJ, when I play this song, not only does every female come to the dance floor, but they move in ways that makes me very happy I'm a DJ. I, I had to include this song. The song is Don't Ya. Okay. Um, it's about a girl who taunts a guy about his girlfriend making her jealous by asking if he wishes his girlfriend was hot like her. Okay. It's a very simple song and our listeners know this. It does not matter, you know, if you are Gen X or or younger, you you know the Pussycat Dolls, you know, don't you? Um, it, it is more of a, you know, the, the Pussycat Dolls are more of a dance troupe than they are singers, really, which could be said for a lot of pop music today. Um, they convey a very unapologetically sexual image that fits the lyrics to this quite well. Um, the writing credits, though, this this I found, uh, I, I never knew this. The writing credits on this song read Thomas DiCarlo Calloway and Anthony L. Ray, uh, which means nothing to me until you find out that 
We know them better as CeeLo Green, okay, and uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot of Baby Got Back mm, fame. Interesting. So the song was originally recorded by Tori Alamaze in, in 2004. Uh, Alamaze was a makeup artist and a backup singer who was signed to CeeLo's production company. Shortly after her version was released as a single, her record company dropped her and stopped promoting the song. So very few people have ever heard it. The very next year, the Pussycat Dolls recorded it in a version also produced by CeeLo and with the Busta Rhymes uh, uh, vocal in, in a guest spot. Uh, CeeLo Green recalled to The Guardian uh, in 2008 that uh, he originally wrote it for another artist, but it found its way to the Pussycat Dolls and the rest is history. He said um, you know, it was more than content uh, going on with with the original artist, but of course the Pussycat Dolls, he said, took it to another level. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Are we about to get it just a little hot and sweaty in this hoop? Baby. Ladies, let's go. Soldiers, let's Dolls. go. Let me talk to y'all and just, you know, give you a little situation. Listen. Listen. You see the get hot every time I come through when I step up in the spot. Make the place sizzle like a summertime cookout. Proud for the best chick. Yes, I'm on the lookout. So banging shorty like a belly dancer with it. Smell good, pretty skin, so gangster with it. No chicks, only diamonds under my sleeve. Give me the number, but make sure you holler before you leave. I know you like me. I know you like me. I know you do. That's why whenever I come around, she's all over you. And I know you want it. It's easy to see. And in the back of your mind, I know you should be with me. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was a freak like me? Don't you? Don't you? Don't you wish your girlfriend was raw like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was fun like me? Don't you? Don't you? And this was the Pussycat Dolls' first single. Many critics predicted that it would be a quick demise for the group, but they went on to record several more hits, actually. And, and speaking on a 2012 Behind the Music special for VH1, Nicole Scherzinger said that she did most of the singing on her own for the Pussycat Dolls album. Um, people, she said, don't even know the whole story. They have no idea. I was in the center always because I was the one singing, she said. Um... She goes on, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for the stuff that I say, but I will never forget. I finished the album, PCD, and Ron, here she's uh, talking about executive producer Ron Fair, Ron and I brought the girls into the studio and we played it for them. It was the first time they'd ever heard the music. So you, you understand what I'm saying, she said. We played the album for the Pussycat Dolls. It was the first time they'd ever heard the songs. The Pussycat Dolls, she said, was me. So... Uh, yeah, I had to, it, it, this one, uh, unapologetically, I mean, if you, if, again, you're talking guilty pleasures. This is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I love, I just love that so many females love this song because when, when it plays, they, they dance the part and it's just, oh, it's one of those moments that being a DJ is just a wonderful thing. 
um, the things you get to see on the dance floor. But uh, it's also just an incredibly catchy song. And frankly, I mean, CeeLo is, CeeLo is amazing. So, you know, learning that he wrote the song almost, is almost vindication, almost justifies the the choice and I, I'm not even looking at you because I can I can feel well, I, was say, I can feel the stare coming. Perhaps for the you. first time in the Gen X mixtape podcast, I have absolutely nothing to offer. I don't know that the song is. I have no. I've I've heard of the Pussycat Dolls. You don't know the song as, as, as a concept. Uh-uh. Oh, okay. I, I have no. Okay. I don't know. Like, what generation is this? Like, what the people that dance this? How old are they? Did this oh, come out in the nineties? Did it come out? Came in out in two thousand five. Two thousand five. Uh, those that dance to it, I and mean, they're they're millennials. I mean, okay. They're, they're okay. going to be twenty somethings. But okay, was um, it like a girl band that that, that people yeah. assembled together? Yeah, it, it's basically yeah, it's exactly what it was. Okay. Uh, it's kind of like the Spice Girls, if the Spice Girls were actually much I don't know people thought the Spice Girls were attractive I whatever um, Pussycat Dolls take it to an entirely new level I mean they they are they were manufactured for their sexual image but uh, this they have a number of huge things this Buttons was another one that that just they just you know they, they just they, they radiate sexuality when you hear the songs so mm-hmm. when when we Play it through, uh, you know. As we begin to sequence, you'll, you know, you'll see what I mean. Yeah, it doesn't mean you'll like the song, but <laughs> you'll, you'll see what I mean. Okay. So, I'm oh, sorry. Kind of left you speechless no, that's, there. No, it's it's all good, man. It's all good. Okay. Man, we're kind of running long. Do you happen to know what time it is? Are we going to Chicago? <laughs> we are going to Chicago. We're on a trip to Chicago. <laughs> Does anybody <laughs> really know what time it is? 1970. Their first single. The debut album, Chicago Transit Authority. The first song ever recorded by Chicago. It appeared on their debut album, as you say, and it was not released as a single, actually, at first. Considered way too long, way too progressive and jazzy for a radio play. But their second album produced two hits, and so they kind of figured out, hey, we can maybe alter this a little bit, cut it down, and make it radio-friendly. And so their first three singles, including this one being the third, were top ten hits. Yeah. Lyrically, the song poses an existential question, um, supporting the simple pleasures in life, right? Uh, Posing the rushing from place to place uh, in a race against the clock. Singer and keyboardist Robert Lamb was inspired to write the song when he was walking by a movie theater usher outside for a cigarette break. Lamb asked him what time it was, and the usher responded, does anyone really know what time it is? Man? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he said man afterwards. I added that. As I was walking down the street one day A man came up to me and asked me What the time was that was on my watch Yeah, I said As a kid in the 80s, and I think you were the same way maybe, Peter Cetera was Chicago for me. He was, yeah. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But on a vacation road trip with my family growing up, I remember this song came on the radio, and I was really confused when the DJ said that it was Chicago. 
I remember asking my dad, and my dad informed me that the band had a history that ran back to the time I was born, and that this was one of the first times that I considered like a band can evolve in style. Like I began to think, oh, so you can still be a band even if you have a different lead singer or you have a different style, right? Right. And that bands can, can evolve. Of course, this is something I'd further explore uh, with the Beatles when I got involved with the Beatles catalog. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a Chicago fan per se. I'm at the level of like, I have a couple compilations and I have a few albums um, by them. But now I appreciate the earlier stuff much more oh, what, yeah. <laughs> with the horn section. And, and Peter Cetera hated the horns. It was his, when he kind of take, took over as the identity of the band. Of course, Peter Cetera was with them, I think, from the very beginning. From the, yeah, he was, he was a member from and, the start. And he sang lead on a few songs um, here and there, and they all kind of shared those responsibilities. But by the time David Foster got involved with around probably Chicago 16, 17, and Peter Cetera began to write these huge mega hits, he, you know, the band be, kind of became Peter Cetera band and he really his objective was just to get rid of the horns as much as possible yeah which is oh it's gut-wrenching that he did i mean early early chicago i mean they for all intents purposes they were a jazz ensemble right and you know they they when when we talk crossover you know well on the charts most people do not associate you know pop music and and jazz you know those two but Chicago was on the jazz charts with every album through I think the first 12 that they that they put out. I mean they they were hugely popular. They were kind of like Steely Dan, but they actually were happy. <laughs> yeah, they were they were happy, yeah, and and No, yeah. Steely Dan whole different level, but yeah, in the sense that they were jazz rock yeah. kind of fusion. Well, and they they had more of I mean yeah, it's a jazz fusion like Steely Dan, but Steely Dan is like we said it it was almost Sterile. It was very sterile, very I love it, cold. Very yeah, Chicago. I mean, it's it's more of just a free form, expressive, almost a bebop, you know, right. feel to it when, when the horn section comes in, and it's yeah, love early Chicago. You put on Chicago when you just want to feel good. I mean, there's no particular. De- I shouldn't say there isn't any depth because there is some depth. To, you know, beginnings is a great. Oh yeah, they're just a fun fun band that managed. To, I can't imagine the different incarnations they've had, and how many band members at one time have been on stage. Oh, yeah. But um, I'm sure when you see them live now, it's not the original lineup, not especially not without no, Pizza Terra. No. But uh, well, yeah, they'd be another band like like the Doobie Brothers, right, you know, where right. where it's just a constant, you know, constant turnover. I, I'm sure that at best they have one, maybe two members left from '69. But yeah, no, it's a great song, and it actually it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even think of this song. Um, well, that's a so, question. And by the way, it was, no, it's a, it's a great addition. To they the, did include a question mark. Did they? Yes, they did. But no, the Smiths did not. I don't know if I mentioned that. No, and but no, it's a great addition to the to the mixtape. I just I didn't even think of it, which I'm I'm kind of upset with myself that I because I, well, I, I, I I love well, I appreciate <laughs> it. I, I love oh, love early Chicago, and I I didn't even think of this song, but but I, I picked up on your cue. I knew exactly where, I knew where we were going. We were on our way. I mean, we are going long too, but either yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> well, but I, I knew we were headed it's to Illinois good. as well, so. Um, okay, so are you I'm done, and this done. should be your last this pick. This is my last all pick. Right. Uh, 1992. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know it's coming. Maybe the, the, the listeners know it's coming. This one uh, hit number 11 on the Hot 100. It is by Hathaway, and it is titled 
what is love? I was wondering if you would include that. I did. It I came did. across my radar and I kept moving. <laughs> yeah, I, and I knew you would. <laughs> but Because it's become such a parody now, a part of that. I think the Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan sketch, uh, they even made a movie. Yeah, United I forget. Roxbury. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, well, yeah, this, this pick, I mean, it remains a wildly popular dance track. But here's the thing. Most listeners do a Dave when, when the song plays. What I mean by that is they pay little or no attention to the lyrics. That is true. Okay. Because the song, What is Love, uh, it's by Trinidadian uh, Eurodance and house musician Hathaway, as I said. It is upbeat, to be sure, but the lyrics are actually pretty gut-wrenching. I, I, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking song. Hathaway sings about the woman who no longer loves him. You know, oh, I don't know. What can I do? What else can I say? It's up to you. Know that we're one, just me and you. I can't go on um it's just it's a very it's a it's a downer (laughs) it really is but with that beat i mean it's just most people don't know or or pay very little attention to the lyrics themselves well especially not on the dance floor exactly yeah um it was hadaway's only hit in the u.s he is a one-hit wonder here uh in the states though he's had several in europe and it's likely this one also would not have charted if not as you said, for Saturday Night Live. Um, the song, it gained popularity when it was used in that recurring skit, you know. Um, and you name the two, right? Will Ferrell and, and Chris Kattan. But um, the third, because it was always three. Jim it was Carrey. was a trio. Well, it, it, Jim Carrey was one of the guests. He was one of them, yeah. Right. It was usually the host, right. the host of the show. Right. Um, Carrey was one. Sylvester Stallone had his turn as, <laughs> as the third. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And then, um, as a takeoff on the Saturday Night Live bit, the song was also used in a 2008 Super Bowl commercial for Pepsi Max. I don't know if you remember that one. In the commercial, various folks were seen nodding off, but after taking some swigs of Pepsi's elixir, they they wake up nodding in rhythm to the song. Uh, Celebrities appearing in the ad included LL Cool J, Buster Rhymes, Missy Elliott, and at the end of the spot, a very peaked Chris Kattan yells, stop it to some very enthusiastic nodders so that was my side one side right. one i was just i was having fun hey they're fun and, songs yeah it's good um i just wanted i wanted to throw in some songs that i did not know would ever find a place on at least on my list ever again side two is going to be a little little a little stronger uh musically but um yeah I, i'm done with side a so what what do you got for your last one here 
Well, this song here, I was just I was looking ahead in my notes to see my I have three alternates left, and I have to start with an alternate next week. So I was just saying where I'm going to start. But before I do that, of course, I need to finish with my last song. And this song is an extremely important song to me. Very, very, very special. Why? It was the first song I placed on the first ever mixtape that I made for my girlfriend, who six years later agreed to marry me. This would be Huey Lewis in the news. You remember. I remember. Wow. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Wow. Looking back, I couldn't have picked a better song to optimistically forecast the course of our future relationship. It's so optimistic, musically and lyrically, you know, my spirits still pick up every time I hear it. You know, it's a combination of that and the fact that it's just an early 80s tune from 1982, which I think I've already discussed. I think 1982 is like the sweet spot for early 80s music. That's what you said. For me. Yep. Uh, the song, as you say, Do You Believe in Love by Hugh Lewis and the News, came out in 82 from their album Picture This, which is actually their second uh, studio album that was released. The, um, I thought it was their first. No, no, no. There was, this, there was an album before. What? Um, What's on the first one? Any singles on the first? They had two singles. They both flopped. I think one of them called uh, now, now Here's You, I think, was like the first single off of that one. But let's go back, okay? I'm sorry, I, I didn't no, mean to no, 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 I, just, I thought Picture This was their first no, it's, album. It, it, no, it's interesting. This is interesting. So the world was introduced to Huey Lewis and the News through this three-minute and 30-second single off their second album, Picture This. The song was written by hitmaker Mutt Lang. Right. Of course, we'll hear a lot from him. Who offered the song to the band after he recorded it in 1979 with his band, Supercharge. Mutt Lang had a band called Supercharge. They didn't do very much, okay? I had no idea. This was over in the UK. I had no idea right? he ever had a band. So that's Lang news to me. produced a few albums in the late 70s with a San Francisco band called Clover who moved to England and eventually became the backing band for Elvis Costello's first record, which, of course, My Aim is True, which features my favorite So the, the song, attractions Ellison. were the... Clovers. The attractions came later. Oh. Despite the fact that they got to back up Elvis Costello on this, yeah. this album. Yeah, right. It was just studio musicians right. at the time. I forgot about that. They yeah. still could not find success on their own. They moved back to the States, and they renamed themselves Huey Lewis and the News. Huh. Mind blown? Huey Lewis and the News backed up Elvis Costello on My Aim is True. And on Allison, yes. That is, I... <laughs> Holy hell, I... I that, that just knowing their two styles, that doesn't even jibe I know, in my mind. I know. So, okay, that's why they regrouped and changed their name because they wanted to go with a more soulful. Now, was Huey with them? I mean, was he part of the Clovers? Or did, I or don't did, think so. I was going to say. I that, think they picked him up later on, and that's when okay, he became so the, the news. So yeah. they were essentially the news. Right. Was, right okay. Correct. I was going right. to say Huey is a front man. I can't see him right doing backing vocals right, to Elvis right. Costello, but. Um, Clover has you know, regrouped uh, as Huey Lewis in the News, and they do release an album that completely flops. Um, I think the song, it was called Now Here's You, because I remember I might have put that on a mixtape for my wife later on. I think that became a thing. Every mixtape began with another Huey Lewis in the News song. Eventually I ran out of Huey Lewis in the News songs. Um, <laughs> either, either they began with a Huey Lewis song or I had one somewhere on the mix. And I think I was scraping the bottom of the barrel there with their debut album. I hope you saved <laughs> Stuck With You for, for much later. You know? Much later. <laughs> so. um, anyway, so they, they knew that they needed a hit to keep making music. And so they were looking for a hit. And of course, they had this relationship with Mutt Lang who produced Elvis Costello. 
And he said, well, why don't you try this song that didn't work with my band? And at first they, especially I think Huey just didn't dig it. They're like, well, but they, they knew they needed a hit. And so they went ahead and it worked for them. Of course, that with the help of MTV, who had a video uh, for the song as well. Uh, Huey Lewis and News was introduced to the world. And huh. the rest, as they say, is history. You know, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't like Do You Believe in Life? Mean, because that it's such a natural fit for yeah. Huey's image and, and the sound. I mean, it's... They felt it was too commercial. <laughs> Huey, <laughs> and, wait, Huey Lewis and the News thought well, that it was too... I don't know what they were going for originally, but I think they, they wow. found their niche. They found their voice, right? Uh, obviously, yeah, but... but Apparently, but that's not the voice they the wanted. Think about, the, think about the album, picture this, right? Think about the other songs. Think about Working for a Living. Working for a Living. Much would, more of a, of a soul rocker. Yeah, that was the other big you, hit. You know, I think when they, re- they released the album and when, when Do You Believe in Love was such a big hit, I think that kind of informed their songwriting choices for sports, which, of course, was their huge right. follow-up album. Yeah. Because um, picture this, it, it does like, uh, what else? The other single was... I hope you love me like you say you do, which is kind of a, oh, a slower yeah. love song. Forgot about that one. So maybe the other tracks were closer to what they were looking for in a band, but okay. yeah, I mean, how do you argue with? And part of it too, it could be they heard the version uh, from the band Supercharge, and they're like, "What's this?" But once Hugh and Lewis and Lewis took the song right and, and arranged it and adapted it to their style, then they began to see that it was a good choice. Supercharge. I'm going to have to look up Supercharge. <laughs> I'm just, this whole thing intrigues me. I'm, okay. So um, this is where we have decided we're not going to sequence these because uh, we're going to sequence all of the songs when they have them um, at the end of of next week. Um, Like always, or at least since we've been doing this, we're going to create a playlist. We'll call it um, the Side A Playlist for questions mixtape do we have any idea at all yet for a title we probably want to wait till next week uh, yeah we're gonna yeah. wait okay so yeah. we'll just call it a questions mixtape side a on spotify so you can listen to these 12 choices and we'll see um with the next 12 next week where we end up but so far it's shaping up to be a great episode yeah yeah and i know this one is just it's it is it's just fun um and and next week I don't want to suggest that all mine get heavy, and you know, but but it's that they there are some that that are far more serious and and load. But then I also have I, I start off next week with probably the most laughable of of my entire list. So um, yeah, it's it, it was just a fun list to compile. I mean, I, it's just I don't know. I'm I'm so glad that that we decided to do this one because it's. It's unlike our, our usual fare, so. Boy, my next week is very, very new wave heavy. Is it? Yeah, an alternative. Yeah, wow. I didn't do a good job of part. Well, I suppose this episode I had a few, so. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I'm I'm actually I'm very well. I was going to say I'm mostly in the seventies, but that's not true because I have a couple eighties here, and then I I go back to the nineteen fifties. So by the way, they don't use a question mark in "Do you believe in love?" So very disappointed. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. Oh, I I haven't been reporting mine actually. Uh, what is love? Has a question mark. Don't you? Does not. And um, what have I done to deserve this? Does and my first two? Neither one did. Um, I mean, is she really going out with him? Did but. Uh, do you know what I mean? And uh, do you love me? Did not. So, um, yeah, I, the question, it's like, it's like watching teenagers text, you know, it's like, right. all right, well, it's, it's that time. We need to uh, thank our sponsor, Jay Callahan painting. Um, she does an amazing job painting both the interior and exterior of your homes or, or anything else you'd like to have painted. Um, you can find her on social media. Please look her up on Facebook, Jay Callahan Painting. Serves the greater Cleveland area and let her know that you heard it from Gen X Mixtape that Dave and Al sent you. Um, that's it until next week. All right. Hot fun, cool punk. Even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, we want you to press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Thank you.